Good day, everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. This is a corporate update from FPX Nickel and CEO Mr. Martin Turin. FPX Nickel trades on the TSX Venture with the symbol FPX. Uh, Martin, you put out news this morning, really just kind of providing an overview into the exploration drilling program at the Dakar Nickel District up there in British Columbia. Uh, so I thought we'd follow up here and really talk about kind of what this campaign is going to look like for not only your investors, but maybe people looking into the nickel space. Kind of walk us around what the objectives are here. Yeah, happy to do that, Trevor. Thanks for having us on again. Um, so the the main focus of the company is really advancement of the Baptiste deposit, which is also at Descartes, which is one of the world's largest nickel deposits. We've completed a PEA on that that shows this could be one of the largest nickel uh, operations in the world and, and have very low carbon footprint and very low cost of production. Six kilometers north of Baptiste, last year we did an initial drill program at this van target. And based on those results and the results of uh, previous samples of outcrop, so that's bedrock coming to surface, uh, a hypothesis has emerged that this van target could indeed uh, potentially be a larger and or higher grade deposit than Baptiste. And so while the main focus of the company is to move Baptiste as quickly as possible through to, to a construction decision, we also owe it to ourselves and to our shareholders to understand what we have at this van target and, and again to test this hypothesis that it could in fact be larger or higher grade than Baptiste. And, and that's what this, uh, this morning's release was all about is announcing another uh, campaign of drilling at that van target. It's a really interesting balancing act here. And so, you know, I kind of feel for how you kind of are managing both uh, Baptiste, but also Van, because obviously you made some nice, uh, nice discovery, discovery holes from last year at Van. Now, this is really kind of focused to expand on that. You know, how are you balancing both? You talked about thinking about construction decision. Now there's some technical reports from Baptiste that need to continue to be put forward there. So how are you balancing technical reports, but also exploration for Van? Yeah, the, listen, the, particularly when we talk to consumers of nickel in the downstream of the electric vehicle battery supply chain, so specifically the chemical companies, the battery companies, and indeed the car makers themselves, they are eager to see this project come to fruition and come into production as quickly as possible. And when, when I say this project, I mean Baptiste. So that really is the main focus of the company is trying to drive that as quickly as possible uh, because there is this this huge appetite for nickel units to serve the North American EV battery market. However, you know, before we go into, let's say, a feasibility study, certainly on Baptiste, we would want to understand what we have at Van and, and to allocate at least some of our expenditures to, to delineating that deposit. Um, and again, we could be in the, in, in the, in the situation within, you know, a year and a half or so that, Perhaps the van deposit is shown to be uh, larger and or higher grade than Baptiste. I would categorize that as sort of a nice problem to have at that point, but it, would, it may impact on project development uh, decisions. You know, one, one of the other advantages I would say, though, that, that we benefit from is that this style of nickel mineralization, this nickel iron alloy, this awarewite mineral uh, that we target with our, with our exploration activities, tends to occur in these sort of disseminated, relatively homogenous deposits. And so you can step out really wide and prove up tonnage very quickly here, mm. um, which is to say that the, um, the, 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 the drilling costs to define a very large deposit here are relatively modest. Um, and so we can step out up to a kilometer west of where we drilled last year 
and we'll probably only end up spending, you know, something in the range of one to one and a half million Canadian. So it's actually a relatively small expenditure to kind of test that hypothesis. Okay. So you're talking about, according to the Reese, 3,000 meters, which is eight to 10 holes. So it really isn't much here, but really could have some really good potential for moving forward. That's right. Again, it gets to that how homogeneous the distribution or mineralization of these types of deposits tend to be. Um, just to give you a sense, on 400 meter spacing of drill holes, you can you can um, categorize tonnage in the inferred category, mm. right? So that is massive, massive, uh, or high degree of homogeneity, and that allows for very efficient sort of deployment of capital on a very you know modest basis to prove up tons very very quickly. That is really the flip side of of having a relatively low grade uh, but disseminated deposit. Unlike higher grade deposits, you know, vein style deposits, for example, uh, which are more common, let's say, in let's say uh, high grade underground sulfide deposits, those types of deposits you end up having to pin cushion them with drill holes in order to prove up tons. Here, the flip side, the benefit of having a relatively low grade but disseminated style of mineralization is you don't have to spend very much on drilling to prove up tons. So let's hypothetically, let's say you do these 10 holes, come back that the resource obviously you've proven expansion from that point on what do you need to do to get to a new inferred resource for van do you need to do more drilling or can you go straight into maybe doing an estimate certainly on the back of what we have and what we'll do here in 2022 we'll have enough to sort of do back the napkin sort of what i would call an internal resource model sure. whether that's enough confidence to actually do a resource estimate i wouldn't i wouldn't want to guide people in that direction um, you know from where i'm sitting right now i think it's probably two seasons of drilling so 2022 and then 2023 to be able to put hand to heart to say we'd come out with a sort of a publishable um, uh, mineral resource estimate. Okay. And how about time frame here? When does drilling start and when do you believe it'll be wrapped up? Yeah, we will mobilize in the, the latter part of June. Um, and so probably have drills, uh, the, the drill turning by the, by late June or early July, uh, depending on sort of ground conditions, et cetera. Um, and then we would expect the program to kind of unfold over approximately a six week period and then, you know, if we're wrapping up by kind of uh, mid-August or so, then you'd be looking at, you know, probably having results into the market, hopefully by the October timeframe. So, of course, we're all well aware of what's been happening with lab delays uh, in our industry over the last couple of years. Very good. Um, Martin, I think it, we, sh we should kind of maybe go back and rediscuss the nickel market. I think it was a couple, about... Two months ago, uh, the nickel market was, I guess, in chaos, you could say, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, the news out of the London Metals Exchange was really making, um, it was headline news, actually. Where do we leave it at now? You know, it, it, things have been quiet down. Obviously, there's a lot of volatility in general markets. Commodities are taking a breather. Um, but really, the demand for nickel in the long term still holds clout here. So what are you watching right now? What do you want investors to know? Yeah, we did have this this absolutely unheard of volatility upward in the nickel price a couple of months ago as a result of a very of a of a squeeze of a very large short position by a large Chinese entity. That entity is both a stainless steel maker and a large nickel producer themselves. They had built a very large short position and were squeezed um uh 
in part as a result of the invasion of, of the Ukraine and the and the, the potential impact on nickel supply coming out of Russia. Um, you know, there was a lot of press around this at the time, Bloomberg, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, it was, it was extensively covered at that time. What has been happening um, since then is that short position has been getting unwound uh, relatively slowly. And so, you know, the latest news reports have it that, that about half of that short position has been covered or unwound, and but there's still a relatively significant short position on and it will it will likely take another couple of months for that position to get fully unwound, hmm. and then I think the nickel market would return to a straight a state of greater normalcy with respect to both you know volume of trading, which has been relatively light um, in terms of uh, uh, the, the nickel futures contract, as as well as perhaps more importantly for investors, the nickel price itself. Recall that the nickel price spiked to you know in excess of you know twenty five dollars a pound. Um, is now sitting in the range of around $12 a pound. You know, I think the view of most market participants, including myself, is that, you know, the nickel price will likely settle more in the range of around $10 a pound over, over the next few months as this as this position is settled. And uh, that's still a very robust price. And, and um, you know, it's been interesting, I think, through this period of volatility in the junior mining markets to note that Though the nickel price is traded in this sort of twelve to fifteen dollar a pound range for the last couple of months, um, that the share price of juniors like FPX is in fact pretty much across the board significantly lower now than it was before this whole short squeeze mm-hmm. began, which is um, just speaks to the to the kind of the carnage in the junior market we've seen recently. The other topic I wanted to ask you about is there's like this continued discussion about. Um, new players coming into the nickel exploration and mining space. We've talked about the Teslas and, um, you know, the car manufacturers needing to really find a source of these materials. You mentioned chemical companies as well. Uh, The conversations continue to evolve here, but it does seem like it's pertinent for these companies to continue to consider funding straight from the source. The flip side of this, Martin, and I would like you to address this, is that there is – this um, this this side of it, the companies that come in in funding for this for the sources of these materials could be on the hook for the longevity of these mines. And you know as well as I do that mining is a very tough business. Uh, do you feel like that could maybe continue that risk aversion could keep some of these companies away from doing just that? It absolutely could. I mean, the mining business is not their core business. If you're a chemical company or a battery company or an automaker, you're, you're, you don't have any domain expertise. You don't have personnel who are experienced in running mining operations, et cetera. So I think in the short term, the way that these those groups, those, those downstream consumers of nickel will try to uh, position themselves is to, is to secure nickel via offtake. Um, that could come with uh, relatively significant prepayments as well in order to help uh, advance projects along. So projects could could enter what are effectively stream streaming agreements with these downstream consumers, whereby the consumers make an upfront prepayment uh, that allows you know uh, developers to continue to advance their deposit. Some proportion of of the offtake is then promised to that downstream consumer at some pricing that that consumer sees as favorable. Um, and so in that way, think that, think of the, uh, the downstream consumers as entering into stream type of arrangements that would limit their exposure to mining risk as such. 
that they wouldn't have to become operators in the same way that Franco Nevada or Wheaton Precious are not mine operators. Um, The other way that that I, the other model for this, I think, is a model that's fairly well understood and has a long track record in the mining industry. And that that has been the way that, that, that countries like Japan and Korea have tended to address their, um, their lack of sort of natural resources domestically. And the Japanese, I think, have been particular leaders in this. Groups like Sumitomo Corp, for example, these large trading houses that will actually invest in mining projects, typically taking a minority interest in the range of 20 to 30%. So they have asset level ownership. And what comes with asset level, level ownership is rights to product to then feed back into the Japanese economy. Hmm. So again, Sumitomo Corp doesn't have to be a mine operator in that scenario. They can allow a larger mining company like a tech or an Anglo-American to be the operator. But by having asset level ownership, they secure an enduring sort of interest in production Mm -hmm. uh, over and above what might be available to them if they simply entered into, let's say, a streaming type arrangement. So there are actually established mechanisms in the mining industry that will allow these consumers to, to get involved in a way that doesn't require them necessarily becoming mining companies as such. And I also wonder if the, if, if techs and Silicon Valley's venture capital means of funding fits into this model somehow. And, and obviously I'm not an expert in venture capital, but it does seem that once deliverables are met through the process of building technology, then those funding mechanisms can be upped or re-delivered for the next stage of what needs to happen. So I'm wondering if maybe this, we see a little bit of arbitrage of funding through the exploration and mine development process here through companies who are more familiar with that type of funding than they would be just through normal equity and and market raises. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I mean, you know, the typical Silicon Valley venture capital investors, they're, they're very interested in, in investing in, in, you know, let's say a new EV startup or a new battery startup. You know, if you and I probably sat down for a half an hour, we could probably come up with a pitch and go and, (laughs) go to the Silicon Valley and, and try to raise, you know, 10 or $50 million to get ourselves off, off the ground. Um, the, the next order thinking, the, the sort of the third derivative of that, if you will, is to think about the raw materials supply chain and, and how do we, how does, how does, how does the, uh, how does the, how does the economy effectively generate the underlying kind of technology metals that go into these companies, whether, you know, and we have seen some instances. For example, um, there's a company called Cobold Metal Metals, which is uh, uh, funded largely by Breakthrough Energy Venture uh, Partners, which is a uh, a climate focused venture capital firm backed by Bill Gates. And so the 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 thesis of Cobold is that it's going around looking for cobalt using AI techniques in in places. Um, other than the DRC, basically, mm-hmm. to try to generate non-DRC source of, of cobalt. Now, I may have messed up the pitch for that company. If I did, <laughs> I apologize. But that, that, that's basically the pitch there. So it's sort of marrying the search for, for minerals with a bit of an AI sort of uh, aspect to it so that, that can get the, the, the technology uh, investors interested. But fundamentally, it's about, you know, um, you know Bay Area 
VC type money going into the mining industry. And that, that's an interesting sort of precedent to think about. Uh, Martin, I'll give you kind of the, the, the last word here. Anything else kind of pressing it on top of your mind here in this space that you think is worthwhile for the listeners to, to pay attention to? Yeah, just just the what what is at this point uh, just a beyond absurd disconnect between you know uh, the price of base metals and the price of the underlying equities, and that's not just FPX. I could rattle off a list of ten other strong explorer developers in the base metal world who are looking at you know year low share prices in in the face of copper over four dollars and and zinc over a buck seventy and and nickel over twelve dollars a pound. It is an absurd set of circumstances in terms of the valuations. These are definitely the times to be buying and not to be selling from an investor standpoint. All right, Martin, good to connect with you. Sorry I missed you last week up in your neck of the woods. Yeah, next time these these conferences are happening again, and I'm sure we'll see each other soon. Yeah, PDAC, I hope. PDAC. All right. Indeed. That's Martin Turen from FPX Nickel. Again, trading on the TSX Venture with FPX. They are a sponsor of the podcast. And we are going to take a break. We'll be back later with some more corporate updates here on Mining Stock Daily. Stay tuned. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.